Hey, good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, maybe it's not morning for you, but uh, it is for me. And welcome to your weekly dose of Jesus's dope, talking about his relevance in our life, his relevance in his claims. And uh, no matter what your faith or upbringing or background is, or how much of Jesus you know or think you know, uh, there's always more. He's inviting us to know him more and experience him more. So uh, we are in verse 6 of Matthew 5 as we keep walking through what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And um, here's what Jesus says now. Here's what he claims is true about him and his kingdom, about the reality of life. And if we choose to believe him and follow him as like the primary idea in our life that we orient around. These are the things he says are true. These are the things that bless us. So Matthew chapter five, verse six, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Now that begs lots of questions. Uh, Again, we've talked about blessed every week, but what do you you mean blessed? Does that mean life's going to go all the ways I want it to go? No, uh, that's not what he says. Um, and what's it mean to hunger and thirst? And what is what is righteousness? And what exactly will you be filled with? What does that mean? Now, up to this point, Jesus has claimed that blessed uh, you're blessed in life when you realize your need for Him. When the the way He said it was when you're you're poor of spirit. So there's blessing in life, real fulfillment, real meaning, real goodness comes in life when we realize our dependence upon him. Uh, and then then he said, blessed are you when you mourn. And we talked about how that's kind of two things. It's blessed are we, good is life, greatness is found in life when we allow our suffering and pain to deepen our relationship with him, to, to relate more with his pain and suffering, um, which directly connects to our sin. And so there's also blessing in life when we learn to cry for our sins, when we take seriously our mistakes and not cavalier. And then um, last week we talked about blessed are the meek, which is like blessed are we when we take up our God-given space in this life and we live with our power restrained to him, like like he's in charge, when we submit. And so um, all that kind of leads um, to some context to this word righteousness. I think if there's ever a churchy sounding word, righteous is one of them. Maybe sin is is uh, equal in like churchiness and maybe even kind of con, you know, like a, a word that's used in a condemning kind of way. But righteous is actually a very simple word. Righteous just means what is right. So simple. So Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you, when you hunger and thirst, when you seek desperately to do what is right. Now, what is right is a little difficult because we are all trying to live by a standard of what's right, right? Like as as Americans, or not as Americans, just as humans, we are right-making machines. Um, We think things and we have opinions that we think are right. And then when we realize they're wrong, we change our opinions and thoughts and then we're right again. So we love being right, and um, the, the problem is, is that uh, right 
can be kind of fluid, right? Can change. Right is based on how we were raised in our culture. And so we view a right way of seeing money or dealing with money or having a relationship with money or, or how to deal with anger or manage anger or deal with conflict. There's lots of opinions of what is right. And if you've lived enough life, you kind of come to know that, um, well, we, we all have versions of right that are different than each other. And, and we're both kind of right. Um, and that right isn't so kind of black and white and simple, uh, not as simple as we would like it to be. That's for sure. So right, um, doesn't serve us well. If we think of righteousness as just what is right, it's kind of like when you ask someone, what's the definition of integrity? Well, they're like, well, doing what's right. Well, right. According to who? Um, and, and so a better, I think, definition of integrity is when you're actions and your words are integrated when they're aligned. When you do the things that you say, then you have integrity, whether that's completely right in every situation, everywhere, all the time. I don't know. But, but what Jesus is kind of pointing to is that when we learn to hunger and thirst to seek, to be desperate for what is right in, in right living, in taking seriously, just like our sins, uh, how we, how we speak and what we do, our integrity in life, then, then we're getting closer to what Jesus seems to be saying and, and would align with uh, many other places of his teaching. And so I think the definition of righteousness goes one step further of not just what's right according to you or me or someone else, but righteousness as a word, especially throughout the scriptures, through the Bible Jesus used and what he would be referencing here, is that righteousness is what is right according to God. What is right according to Jesus, who claims that he is God? In fact, Jesus claims that, that he is the way to live our life, that he is the truth that we're looking for in life, um, and that he is the only way to the Father. That, that, that he makes this unequivocal, unapologetic claim that he is truth, so that you and I don't have to seek truth to figure out what we think is right for someone else's right, but rather that in knowing Jesus, we know what is right. We know what is truth. And he, he would say lots of things. In fact, we'll get to this verse eventually. Um, we're only six verses in now. But uh, in the next chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, still a part of this same sermon that Jesus is teaching, uh, he says this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he's referring to God the Father, to Jewish people who would like understand that. But he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness what's right according to God. And all these things will be given to you. And when he's saying this, and again, we'll get there, but, but he's mentioning how like we spend so much time in life worried about our clothing and um, our security and uh, food and these like very basic things in life. And we spend all this time worrying about it, but God takes care of the flowers and he takes care of the birds. And he's inviting us to live by the kind of radical faith that trusts him with the most basic needs in our life. And he says, if we learn to seek first his kingdom, and his right way of living, then he'll take care of all those other things that tend to worry us. So he's literally claiming that if we seek first uh, life, um, to live a life that's right, a life according to his teachings, that he can take care of all those other things that we tend to, to worry so much about and that we can learn to live from a place of faith, not living our own way, but according to his way, one day at a time. And so seeking first is another way of saying to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
right? Seek first the kingdom of God or hunger and thirst. So what does that look like? And, and words like hunger and thirst are so elemental to our existence, right? There's nothing more kind of basic, at least to our physical existence, than to hunger for food and need to eat it to be sustained and have calories and energy and nutrition, and to thirst for water to hydrate us. Like we physically can't live without those things, right? We might be able to live a couple of days without water or a couple of weeks without food, but, but we can't live very long. And so Jesus will do this a lot. He'll use things in the physical realm to remind us. In fact, most spiritual practices are a way of taking something physical like money or food or um, our time, like in, in um, the spiritual practice of Sabbathing, and learning how to give it back to God in a way that's unnatural to us to be spiritually reminded of a greater reality than just our physical needs, right? So if you hold on to your money really tight, because physically we know having 100% of our money is better than having less than 100% of our money, and God's like, no, 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 Here, here's a way to practice that. Take a tithe, the 10% of it, and give it to the church, give it to your local community, give it away, so that you can realize that you're 100% dependent on me, and that your money is better lived by faith off 90% than 100%. And most spiritual practices have that element. Sabbath, like give up trying to do and produce with your life for 24 hours and watch that I still make the world work and run and take care of you and you're not known or your value's not in the fact that you produce. Or um, even submission to authority is like tithing our opinion that we don't always have to have it our way and have it right or think that we're right by just following people that God's put over us in our life. Um, as spiritual authority, which even includes governments, uh, and this is super fun, headed into another election year that I loathe, and I hear Christians say all kinds of nonsense that is just absurd. Um, and I, I even heard during the last election that people were like, well, I know Romans 13 says we have to submit to all authority and that no authority is in place but God, but, you know, like God didn't know how evil these people would be. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like when, when, when those things were written, the Roman Empire was in charge and Caesar was uh, way worse than any president we could ever have. So relax. Um, but anyway, that's a different topic and tangential. Um, so I distracted myself on that tangent. Um, so back to this hungering thirst for God's presence means that we learn to seek him, to prioritize him and practice spiritually a reality we trust by faith is is as true and more true than our physical needs, right? So, I mean, we don't even think about it, but we know we are dependent upon food and water. But Jesus is always pointing us to like, even without food and water, um, your eternity, your spiritual existence is far greater and more important. And so learn to hunger and thirst in the same way you do for food and water for me. And just like you can't live long um, in life without water and food, you can't live long without me. That's what he's claiming. And this is um, more simple in desperate situations in life. When we feel desperate, when we feel uh, completely powerless and alone, we have a way of hungering and thirsting for God's presence, right? When we get in a car accident or we're in the hospital or we lose a job, we become insanely aware of our need for God. We are like, God, where are you and what is happening? Why is this happening? God, will you take care of me? We become very, very, very alert to our need for God 
to show up. But I think the hungering and thirst is an invitation to learn how to practice in non-desperate times. That when we feel well-fed and hydrated in life, when life is going smoothly, how do we still hunger and thirst for God and recognize our dependence upon him and need for him? And how do you do that? Well, there's a spiritual practice that I want to challenge you to try. Um, there are a number of spiritual practices, tithing, Sabbathing, and others that I've already mentioned that um, are easy to ignore. Um, we don't do them very well. Um, but one of them is, is fasting. And, you know, just it's a spiritual practice of not eating food for a period of time, usually like a 24-hour period of time or maybe more. Um, and you can start like in baby steps. You can skip a meal. But the idea is to, to not eat. And then when your body is physically hungry for food, you remember, oh, there's a spiritual reality beyond my physical reality. And I'm, in, I'm hungry and I need God and his presence. And so fasting is a way of practicing this statement. And Jesus, I don't love this because... You know, is it right? Is it not? I, you know, like we could argue about all kinds of things and how often should you fast and blah, blah, blah. And he's saying, no, no, just, just trust me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for my righteousness. So just try it. Try it for a meal. Try it for a day. Try it once a month. Um, I've started trying to do this one day a week. Um, and it is very difficult and sometimes feels pointless, if I'm honest. But it's by faith that I'm just trying to live into this. I am dependent on God and I need to be reminded of it. I have an incredible capacity to forget, to coast and get comfortable um, and not rely on God as much as I should. And so fasting reconnects me with that. And that's the invitation to you. And so um, I'm going to read a different verse from Matthew and a couple chapters ahead of where we're at in Matthew 5, because I read this a few years ago and I felt like, like I had never read it before. I don't know if you've had those moments when you're reading through scripture or Jesus' teachings and you're like, wait, what? Um, and, and I'll just read these two verses because, I mean, theoretically, at some point this podcast will get to Matthew 9, verses 14 and 15. But since we're only six verses in to Matthew 5, it's a long ways away. But um, here's the, this like brief moment in Matthew 9. Uh, John's disciples, now that's the John the Baptist, who was Jesus's cousin, who was like preparing the way uh, and inviting people, um, not, not in the temple spaces by the religious authority, but by just repentance and, and hunger and thirsting for God to be baptized. And then he's the one who baptized Jesus, which is pretty cool. And so it says John's disciples, so people that have been following John as their rabbi, John's disciples came and asked him, him is Jesus. So they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus. And this is what they ask. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, exactly how they knew that other people were fasting and uh, Jesus's weren't, uh, I don't know. But they're like, hey, we fast a ton because we're supposed to. It's a spiritual practice. And the Pharisees, the religious like elites do. And yet, if you're the Messiah, the Lamb, the One, your disciples don't fast? Like, what gives? Why is that? And here's Jesus' answer, verse 15. Jesus said, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Now, Jesus speaks cryptically at times and uses this analogy often. 
of that he is like this bridegroom who has come to get his bride and that this reconnection with God is uh, mirrored in in our way of understanding marriage and that there's something very powerfully symbolic about a bride and a groom coming together in one flesh and union and commitment and vow and covenant for the rest of their life. And in, in a small way, that mirrors this beautiful covenant we have from God who is willing to leave heaven, to set aside all of that and be limited as his own creation is and give us a name, Jesus, to know him by and live a life that we can model ours after. And so he uses this analogy and he says, oh, why, why don't my disciples fast? Well, it's because I'm with them right now. Like, why would you uh, mourn at a funeral where the person's not dead? That's kind of the analogy. He said, but, but a time will come when, when I, the bridegroom, I'm going to be gone. Then they'll fast. And so the reason this struck me was that I had never connected that Jesus's physical presence made it unnecessary for his disciples to fast while he was here on earth with them. But that a time would come, I mean, he only hung out with them for like three years, it was pretty short, that, that he'll physically be gone and spiritually they will need to fast to be reminded of his presence, of his realness, of their real dependency upon him. And that just struck me because I, I don't know about you, but I wish Jesus physically could come hang out with me a lot. So I could just ask him the questions that I have about life and about him and about injustices and what's unfair. It, it's like I wish... I didn't have to live by faith. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Like I, no, 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 I want to have faith, Jesus, but could you just show me <laughs> so that I don't have to trust that you're real and I don't have to trust that your way is better. And, um, and Jesus, Jesus is saying in this verse, not just in Matthew 9, but in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 6, if we seek first his kingdom and righteousness, if, if we hunger and thirst for his right way, what's right according to him, that if we practice things like fasting, we can be physically reminded of our spiritual need and the spiritual truth that is Jesus, the way to live. And so by physically depriving yourself of food, you also think of this when you're hungry, you know how this is. We get hangry as we say, we physically are reminded of our, of our strong desire for comfort. And, and, and fasting in a way, it kind of not only is like fasting from food, but it's fasting from our, our comfort, from our convenience. It's fasting from what we want to trust and practice doing what God says. It's a way of fasting from the distractions that keep us from spiritually feeling full because we can, it's almost like when you think of fasting, it's like our food and our full tummies and our comfort can distract us from our deeper needs for God. And that in fasting, we can be filled with something greater than food. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled with what? And, and I don't know how you would answer that as you think of it, maybe like contentment, or we'd be filled with dependency upon God, or we'd be filled with connection. But I think a simpler way of understanding is we will be filled with God's spirit. We'll be filled with his presence. And so if you've ever wanted to feel closer to God, He's inviting you to hunger and thirst for him to practice fasting. That's literally what he's inviting you to do. And this connection with God and this hungering and thirsting for him, this, this, is, uh, this takes us in the scriptures all the way back to the beginning to the book of Genesis to understand how we were made. 
Because it says that in the beginning, God like made us in his image and he breathed the breath of life into our lungs. He filled us with his presence, that he's the source of our breath. He's the source of our life. And we were made in his image for communion and connection with him. And then that was lost. And this is going to be like a really quick summary of all of the scriptures and a good way of understanding ourselves and our identity. But, but follow me on this because what we're filled with is so cool. And, and seeing how it just is this constant thread throughout the stories of scripture, but, but how God made us for that communion and connection. Like we see it with Adam and Eve that he would come. It's like heaven and earth would touch every evening and he would come walk with them in the garden of Eden. But all that was lost and not just through Adam and Eve's story of sin but through our own story of seeking autonomy for ourselves, of seeking our own way to live, not God's, of not trusting him, but wanting to trust our self. And that story of Adam and Eve is our story. So when you read it, you're invited to understand it as a story and what they did, but also to see it and understand it as our story and what we do. We doubt that God said it. We doubt that God can do it. We feel like God might be keeping something from us. And so we, we always want to keep on the side some little sins, some little pleasures because well, we just don't fully trust God. That's our human condition. We live from the space of fear and separation from God. And so we're always trying to kind of hoard um, contentment and, and protect our own autonomy. And some of us, whether it's through addiction and other things, we've come to a place of... Um, Seeing our own autonomy is quite destructive and not helpful. Um, but anyway, um, so, so what happens is that not only does God fill us with the, his breath and life and his presence, then that gets separated because of our imperfection and he's a perfect God. And then the rest of the scriptures are the story of God trying to restore that. And so kind of the next big segment of scripture is God's establishing a people in covenant relationship with him that starts with Abraham and leads to the Hebrews and slavery of Egypt and people that he led out of that through Moses. And then ultimately he gives them this physical thing called the tabernacle, like a, a portable church on wheels that they carry around with them in the wilderness for a long time. <clears throat> and um, if you like look this up, it's super cool moment um, to see the connections that when Aaron prays, Aaron was like the first high priest, like the first pastor of the first portable church in the tabernacle. When Aaron prays at what we could think of as like the ribbon cutting ceremony, like they finish the tabernacle and he prays and makes the first like prayer and sacrifice and leads the first church service, God's presence comes in a physical way that is a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so it's like, I mean, God's presence is everywhere because he's God. But God was showing up uniquely among his people in a physical way, like, like his finger pointing on earth saying, I'm, I'm also right here. So like w when you doubt me and you're not sure where I am, I, I, I'm here. And then much later in, in the story, the nation of Israel becomes established and um, there's Saul who was a terrible king and then David who was good and bad and had his moments like, well, like humans, and then his son Solomon builds the permanent temple. And the same thing happens. At the equivalent of the permanent temple's ribbon-cutting ceremony, God shows up in a physical way again. And, and, and it's the same thing. It's like this pillar of smoke and then this pillar of fire. Like, again, God's 
pointing like I'm uniquely here in this space. And then this is so cool. Through the teachings of Jesus, as he would walk by that same temple that was built, and these people who've been shaped by this identity and story of being made in God's image, of being called out of slavery, of sin, and into covenant relationship with them, Jesus would speak to times, like in John chapter 4 when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a great story. Jesus points to a time. He says, a time's going to come when you'll worship God in spirit and in truth, not because of your geography or your nationality or your gender, where you will worship God um, in just spirit and truth, by just faith, by just seeking. And then when Jesus dies, when he is crucified, at that moment, uh, the, the story is amazing, but part of what it recounts is that there was an earthquake and that something inside that same temple that Solomon built, that got, I mean, had to get rebuilt. There was a whole history there, but the point is inside that temple, through this earthquake at Jesus's death, it says that the veil was torn. And in fact, it says it was ripped from top to bottom. So it wasn't like accidentally. Um, it was like God ripped the veil open. And do you know what the veil separated? The veil separated this space in the temple of like the inner spaces and then what was called the Holy of Holies. And it was, it was thought, it was believed, it was a space that only one person, the high priest, could go in one time a year. That behind that was the presence of God. And the reason it was behind that veil was like, we can't handle the presence of God. It's too perfect. It's too powerful and it'll kill us. And yet at Jesus' death, that's torn, taken away that through what the author of Hebrews would tell us, that literally in Jesus' flesh being torn and his blood being shed for us, that veil and thing that separated us, um, that, that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, to the tabernacle, to the temple, is no longer in the way. But rather that those of us by faith in Jesus as our Lord and our King and our Savior, as the one to follow and the one to learn from and the one to imitate with our lives, he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. And by faith in him, by following him, we regain in a special way the, his presence in our lives, that he fills us. And so if you've ever read Acts chapter 2 and thought it was weird, it's because of this. Because where Acts chapter 2 opens up is it tells us the story of those who believed in Jesus' death and his resurrection, and they did not know what to do next. And Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem or this space, and do not go out and start preaching and teaching about me until the gift of God's presence comes. And in Acts chapter 2, it comes, and instead of it coming as one pillar of smoke and fire like it had in, in the, the days of the temple and the days of the tabernacle, it comes individually over the heads of the people who believed in Jesus. And it was like that day God's presence became decentralized, denationalized. It wasn't about whether you were a man or a woman or young or old or Jew or non-Jew or lived in that space or will live centuries later in completely different countries and cultures. We are invited by faith to know him and trust him and follow him. And through that, he fills us with his presence. Now think of what that says. That means you and I, as we follow Jesus, we are like God's physical presence on this earth, reminding people of his goodness, reminding people that he is real and powerful, that we are the physical presence of God in this world, and that people, through how we talk, how we live, 
how we hunger and we thirst and we seek his kingdom and we seek his right way of living, that people will see his presence, that people will see what Jesus looks like, that people will know that he's real because he's filled us with his presence. That's so dope. I love it. So, hey, I don't know what this means to you, but I sure hope you feel challenged to commit to fast. Try it for a meal. Try it for a day. Try it for a while. Invite some other friends of yours to try it with you so that you can talk about it and process it together because it is uncomfortable and it is not fun. But hunger and thirst for him. And, um, and hey, uh, Jesus is awesome. And so I hope uh, you this week will join me in, in practicing that and in, in finding some ways to hunger and thirst and seek him first. Um, and share this episode and practice and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Instagram, just look up Jesus is Dope Podcast or on Twitter, Jesus is Dope Pod. Um, or more importantly, just subscribe over at Jesus is Dope substack.com. Uh, it's a way to get the articles and the podcast pushed to you. Of course, you can subscribe in kind of the normal places you get podcasts and um, share your prayer requests. And um, yeah, support this so we can keep sharing it and talking about Jesus together. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. See you later.